Amen. It is that time of year, December 31st. Happy New Year's. It's a time where people make all sorts of commitments and promises. We call those in the U.S. uh, New Year's resolutions, which always to me sounds so formal, like I resolve to do this or to do that. I like to call it my yearly lie. You know, I'm going to do this or going to do that, and I never do. Uh, But it is a time to think about changes that we want to make in our lives. And in this sermon series, Today's focus is on how we can find joy in making change. But let's first go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, breathe a little life into us on this winter's day. We are in that season, God, where the days are short and the nights are long and dark, and the world is dark, and perhaps we all long for a little light in the dark. Teach us to find joy in your holy word, that as we wrestle with this scripture today, you would change our minds, renew our spirit, refocus our hearts, so that we might leave this place transformed. In Jesus' name we pray, we hope, and we believe. Amen. I was a freshman in university, sitting in the large dining hall at Campbell University where I attended, and one of my dear friends came and sat across from me. He's a guy uh, who was very charismatic, always had a smile in his face, He was a very strong believer. We'll just call him Bob, because I don't want to tell you his real name. You might be watching. But Bob sits down across from me. It's breakfast. And he asks, he says, Mason, how are you doing? And I said, well, I woke up feeling pretty down today. I don't know. I just feel a little off. And I just have a sadness in my heart. And he goes, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? (laughs) What is wrong with you? He asked. And then he launched into this basically long put-down, or he berated me, if you will, about how he is tired of hearing Christians say that they don't feel well, or tired of hearing Christians say that they're sad, or tired of hearing Christians say that they're going through some, he goes like this, dark times. He says Christians should never have sadness. They should never cry. They should just always be happy like me. To which I responded, what are you talking about? (laughs) Because though we have the joy of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord dwelling in us, we still live in a land of deep darkness. Just as we talked about on Christmas Eve, we still are walking in the shadow of darkness. And as long as we are in this broken world, we will have broken moments. We will have hard moments. We will have struggles in our lives. We will have seasons of depression. We will have seasons where we just feel kind of off or down in the dumps, as people say where I'm from. And ironically, it wasn't but about a month later that I found this same friend crying on my shoulder 
in a time of deep sorrow and grief for the loss of his mother. Christians, we go through difficult moments, and that's the purpose of this next sermon series. Over the the several Sundays to follow, we'll be talking about this theme of, of, well, not this theme, but the, the, the overall theme of finding joy in the dark. Because I have found, as a pastor over the years, every year it's the same cycle. There is all of the hype and the joy and the excitement of Christmas and Advent and the markets. There's things to do. There's places to go. There are presents to open, parties to host and to attend. And there's so much merry to be enjoyed and shared. And yet, it's like a hard stop, isn't it? (laughs) New Year's Day, there's a little fun, and then it's back to the real world. And what's worse is in this time of year, the real world is literally pretty dark, is it not? And many people, especially I think here in Germany, they are struggling with seasonal depression, a lack of vitamin D. <laughs> it's just the winter blues, as it is sometimes called. And sometimes there's more going on than just that. There are people who are reminded of loved ones whom they have lost. I lost my brother and my mother many years ago, and yet I still think about them frequently this time of year. It maybe brings a mixture for you of emotions. Maybe at some points quite happy and you you may laugh, but there will always be some level of sorrow. Not because we doubt where people are, but because we miss them where they are not, right? Other people go through these types of low moments in their life because of work circumstances, family circumstances, And then sometimes it is as if it is for just no reason at all that feels off or tired or dark. Anybody can identify with that. This series is for you. And we will learn throughout the next few weeks about places in the Word that we are pointed to to find and discover joy in spite of of everything else about this broken and dark world. And so it seemed fitting and right that on this New Year's Eve Sunday, for those of you who were able to make it here or to join us online, to start with this New Year's idea of making change. Unfortunately, unlike what we shared with the children, it's not quite so easy as a a wave of the hand. But change is powerful. Transformation is really the biblical word, to be transformed. Let's look together at, a, I think, a, a, a brilliant word from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. And he's going to give us, I, I think, three do nots and one do. Three do nots and one do. In verse 17, he says, Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live. Now, Gentiles is just 
code word for anyone who is not a child of God. Anyone who is not seeking God in their life. Anyone who is not a follower of Christ, specifically in Paul's context. He says you must no longer live as they do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hard-heartedness. So there's the first do not. Do not look to secular answers for spiritual problems. All emotion is a spiritual problem. There's no separation. I think we have sometimes this idea, which is actually a very Greek philosophical idea, not so much a biblical idea, that there is some separation between my, my spirit and my body. There, we have one body, two natures, the spirit and the flesh. And, and since I am always spirit and flesh in this body, all of my bodily issues are also spiritual issues. So we understand that as believers, the world does not. And so the answers to our, to our darkness and to our depression and to our woes and our sorrow and our grief, the answers that the world gives are worldly. That's what that word secular means. They are not spiritual answers. And because they are not spiritual answers, they are of no real use. I mean, you can find a lot of good information in the world, and it might on the surface seem helpful. You know, there are what we call self-help books, like 10 Rules for a Better You, Three Easy Steps to Bring Peace to Your Home, There are all of these books that give you sort of coffee table wisdom, if you will. And it all sounds so simple, doesn't it? But again, the do not here is do not look to secular answers for spiritual problems. Instead, Paul is teaching us that there, there's an opposite to this. Everything has its opposite. And the opposite of the secular answers is not just to say the spiritual answers, but the answers of the Word of God. The Word tells us if you want life and if you want to experience joy, it's not passive. It takes effort. There's something we must change in our lives to experience joy to its fullest extent. So there's a second do not. He goes on to say, they, that's these secular, worldly gurus and advisors, the Gentiles, they have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned uh, abandoned themselves in licentiousness Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let me just read that for you once more. They have lost all sensitivity. Meaning they they no longer really experience conviction or guilt. 
They've given in and have been given over to their primal impulses. And not only that, he says that they've abandoned themselves to licentiousness. This is the this can be a, a byword for many things, a, a, an overarching word, if you will, for all things flesh, the things that the flesh wants. Remember, we said that in our one body, we are flesh and spirit. That flesh is still there, even after you're saved. And the flesh wants to be satisfied, gratified, self-gratified, Indulge in greed and selfishness. And so he says, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So what is the second? Don't don't look for hope in hopeless acts of sin. This is a very common temptation for all believers to revert back to those old habits of sin and sinfulness, and selfishness. And many people will indulge in different things, and it will look differently for this person than it does for that. But the worldly impulse that he is referring to is that when things get hard, what can I take? What can I drink? What can I smoke? What can I watch? What can I listen to? What can I eat? And and all of this is self-feeding sinfulness. And Paul is telling us, do not look for hope in hopeless acts of sin. They might make us feel really good for a little while. I mean, they have to, right? They call it temptation because it's, well, it's tempting. And it has to have some gratification for it to be tempting. And it will make us feel good for a moment, but then in the end we find over and over and over again that self-indulgence and hopeless acts of sin ultimately lead us feeling darker, not better. Sicker, not healthier. Less hopeful, not more hopeful. Paul says we have, we have another, we have we have another opportunity here. We have a, another way of experiencing hope. In verse twenty, he says that is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in in him as truth is in Jesus. You you know better, right? That's what he's saying. You know better than this because you have Christ. You know better. You've experienced the one who says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to kill and to steal and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You know this guy. You have his spirit. So do better. It's kind of like There's an old Southern American saying, if you know better, you do better. This is what Paul is speaking. He says, you were taught to put away your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lust, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. 
and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And that's the third. Do not, do not return to old habits and expect new results. You know, have you ever heard this saying, what is the very definition of stupidity? Do you know the definition of stupidity? It's doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. If it did not work for you, then it will not work for you now. Don't go back. He says, don't revert. And this is a very common source of sorrow for many believers today. They revert back when things get hard or difficult They return to the old habits and expect new results. It's an ancient, ancient condition of the human heart. Look back at the story of the Exodus. When the Hebrews who were enslaved and were being beaten to death by their Egyptian taskmasters, who were being forced to make brick after brick after brick, who were being led out into this dry and terrible, barren existence of life in slavery, when they were finally set free by God. I once was lost, but now I'm found kind of experience where God literally brought them through the Red Sea, across the wilderness, and there in the wilderness do you know what complaint they gave to Moses? They said, Moses, we are hungry. Moses, we are thirsty. Moses, we wish we were back in Egypt like we were before. You see, we always have this broken mentality to think, you know, this isn't working like I thought it would. I'm not getting the answers so easily. I I wish I could just go back to when I could do whatever I wanted. Surely I was happier then than I am now. We're we're so impulse-driven that we lack the patience to let the potter form us, the clay, into what he is making. It takes time. I hear this all the time. Often with people that I'm counseling, they'll say, I I want the change now. I'm frustrated. And they're at the point of giving up because their transformation in life has not happened as quickly as the evangelist promised them. I I was talking with a guy named Rabbi Sager. He was one of my teachers in seminary. And he was telling the story about going to visit the potter at the potter's wheel. I've told a few potter's stories as well. It's amazing to watch that work where the wheel begins to spin at the pumping of their feet. And with wet hands, they form things that are just nothing, a lump of nothing. And from it, they create something beautiful. And he's asking this potter questions about his life and where he studied to do this and how he learned to do it so well. And he's watching the man form something more and more beautiful. And then finally he looks down and he has made this beautiful work of art from clay. And Rabbi Sager asked him, when did you do that? How long did that take you to make? 
And the potter smiled and said, 40 years. You see, it was 40 years of learning and failure and trying again and gaining more insight and more training and learning from people who have gone before and ahead and have made their mistakes and had their failures. And yet it all comes together in the end. Don't rush it. Don't give up. Don't go back to the old ways. And yet in the same few verses we just read, he also gives us a do. Something for us to do and to put into place. He says, don't return to your old habits and expect new results. Rather, be renewed in Christ. Do seek renewal in Christ. Every time life beats you down, just get back up in the grace of God and seek to be renewed a little more and a little more, a little more, and a little more. Such renewal that that Paul is writing about, it requires us to make changes. I was counseling a young woman and she was talking about how she felt so alone and, and isolated and just felt like she had no commitments, connections, or relationships. And she had no one who would stand by her and support her. And she says, and I just don't know why I feel this way. Do you go to church? No. Do you go out and, and make friends, friends and, and seek out people? No. You see, for her to find joy, something has got to change. That, that renewal will require risking change. Risking change is what leads to transformation. And, and I'll tell you that two things about this kind of transformation through change. When we, when we are seeking joy through making changes in our lives, I think there are two rules we ought to follow. This is the American two. There are two rules we ought to follow. One, change one thing, not 100 things. This is the mistake so many people make, especially this time of year. They say, there's so much wrong with my life. I'm going to change it all. And you know, the, the, the taller they are, the harder they fall. The more we try to do it once, the less likely we are to do anything whatsoever. Change one thing, not 100 things. And someone said to me, well, pastor, what do I do once I change that one thing? Well, change another thing. But do it one piece at a time. One piece at a time. And as we begin to to change those one thing, after the next thing, after the next, we may not realize what's happening, but we are being renewed through and through. It is much bigger piece by piece. It's kind of like taking baby steps. If, if you're walking along, just taking the tiniest little steps. You like my baby steps? Just tiny little baby steps. Little baby steps. Doesn't seem like anything. This little step, nothing. Doesn't mean a thing, does it? It's so small. I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I haven't gone anywhere in my life. Nothing's gotten any Wait a minute. I was all the way over there. 
and now I'm here. It's only when we look back on where we've come from that we can see clearly how far God has taken us. But it's one change at a time. And here's the second rule. Change what you can change. Much of my feelings of sorrow are often rooted in fixating and focusing on the things that I cannot change. I cannot change who has died. I cannot change what the economy might be doing or not doing. I cannot change major geopolitical realities. And sometimes we focus so much on all of those things that are going on externally around us that they, well, they enslave us, don't they? We become captive to them. But since we cannot do anything about those things, what good does it do to focus on them? Paul is teaching us to change the only thing we can change, and that's ourselves. Change the things that you can change. I love this prayer. Uh, It's called the Serenity Prayer. I don't know if you're familiar with it at all. But it says very simply this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? And the key is that when God shows us what we can change, change it. It does no good to see what God wants us to do, but be too frozen with fear to actually change. Or too stubborn in our own place of of false security. We seem so grounded We are afraid to make the changes God is calling us to make. I love this story by the late, great comedian Jerry Clower. He tells a story about a hurricane coming. And where I'm from, we have hurricanes two or three times a year. It feels like massive, wind-blowing storms that bring in the, the surge from the ocean and the wind and the rain fills up all of the creeks and rivers. They, they are terrible things, and they are often accompanied by flooding. So this story stands out to me. Jerry tells this story that there was a man who's sitting in his home on the coast of North Carolina when suddenly the announcement for evacuation is made, a hurricane, a storm is coming. But he doesn't want to leave his house He doesn't know where he would go or what the evacuation center might be like or he doesn't know what the roads might look like. So he just says, no, I'm going to stay right here. The Lord is going to take care of me. A few hours later, the water is coming into his house and he has a pickup truck, a big American pickup truck, comes by and the guy comes out on a horn, a speaker system, and says, Sir, there is an evacuation. Get in the truck. I'll drive you to safety. But he doesn't know this guy, and he doesn't know how this truck might do in the floods, and 
He, he just says, well, this is my home. I know this place. I'm going to stay right here. The Lord will take care of me. A few hours later, he's on the roof of his house. And a boat comes by. Sir, get in the boat. No, I'm going to stay right here. The Lord is going to take care of me. Then a helicopter comes and he's on his tiptoes on the chimney of his house. Water now up to his waist. And they lower down a ladder, but he refuses to take it. That seems unsafe. I don't know where that helicopter was going. How good of a pilot is he? No, I'm going to stay right here. And he says, the Lord will take care of me. One hour later, he is graveyard dead. (laughs) And he finds himself in heaven before the Lord. And he says, Lord... You have embarrassed me before all the people. I told everyone, Lord, that you were going to take care of me. I told everyone, Lord, that that I was going to stay right there and that you were going to take care of me. I I, I wasn't going to change a thing because I I told everyone you were going to take care of me. To which the Lord said, well, I sent an evacuation notice, a pickup truck, a boat, and a helicopter. Staying in the same place may seem like the easiest, safest choice. But what Paul is teaching us here is we cannot stay where we are and expect to have life, the life that God promised us. He says, don't be like the Gentiles. They they just stick to what they know. But to really experience joy in the dark, it's risky. It takes courage. It takes a willingness to step out of what we can see into God's will and God's hands, which we often cannot see. It's kind of like if your father ever encouraged you to wade out into the deep end of the pool where you cannot see the bottom but your father could, and our heavenly father can see. He sees the depths and the heights of all things, and all wisdom and knowledge and power is in the palm of his hand. And so true joy will come when we trust those hands to lead us into the change that will bring us joy. Amen.